0: Previously on Give Them And I always say that one of the reasons what I think that science fiction and also why not fantasy and horror um, authors are so, so important in our society is because we are able to imagine things. If you want to build the future, you have to be able to imagine it first. You have to create narratives that uh, allow you to project yourself into the future or even into alternative presence <laughs> so that's why I think it's so important what we do uh, not you just you don't just need
1: scientists in in to progress you also need writers authors today on Geeky Powers you know for me it it lets me be five years old you know when when people ask what I do for work sometimes I tell them that I I fly around in a cardboard spaceship um, because that's what I did when I was a kid. I build spaceships out of car- cardboard, pretend to be an astronaut. And and today, uh, my life's not that different. I'm not actually in a cardboard box. I'm in a room full of books. Um, but I'm, I'm still having those, those dreams and fantasies.
0: You are listening to Geekdom Empowers, the podcast about people empowered through their geekiness. Welcome back! My name is Guy Hasson and this is Geekdoming Powers. Geekdoming Powers is the podcast that highlights creators and fans in the geek world who do not often get to be highlighted. It's these people, it's us, who make up almost all of the geek world. And by talking to each person, by hearing their stories, Geekdoming Powers creates a huge, giant, world-sized quilt of the geeks all around the world. Each person is a story, and together we are one story, one huge geekverse quilt. Our guest today is John Paul L. Garnier, author, poet, publisher, and owner of a vintage science fiction bookstore in Joshua Tree, California, called Space Cowboy Books. He has turned his bookstore into a special place by holding amazing events, by promoting local writers, and so much more, on top of which he has a podcast, Simultaneous Times with short science fiction stories by contemporary authors. We're going to talk about all of that. It's going to be a fun conversation, I promise. But I'll tell you what, stick around for the end. The last 10 or 15 minutes carry a message of optimism that, for me at least, is one of the most powerful we've had on the podcast so far. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Jean-Paul Garnier.
1: Hello, Guy. A pleasure to meet you. you. Nice to meet you. Is it Guy or Guy? It's Guy. 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 Okay, great. I wasn't sure if it went the French pronunciation or... I'm actually named
0: after the French author, but
1: it's called Guy
0: in my country, so...
1: I, as well, am named after a French author, as you probably gathered. Mm-hmm. So why, why were you
0: named after, like, a French author?
1: Um... Well, my dad was a French literature professor um, before I was born. I have a feeling that might have something to do with it.
0: My, my mother was, well, she was
1: 21 when she
0: had me. So she was fresh out of school and she really liked uh, the author, de Maupassant. So she called me Guy and thought I might be an author, which I turned out to be, which is a very strange coincidence because I only heard that was the reason I was called Guy, like, in my 30s so (laughs) and I got really excited by watching your uh, website and watching the events you're holding so I had to talk to you so let's let's go through the stages like uh what is your origin story how did you get into you were born Jean-Paul Sartre and then uh what happened uh
1: so yeah my father was a French literature professor um you know, I grew up before the days of the internet, so if I ever had a, a question about anything, my dad would point to his library, so the answers are there, uh, mm-hmm. so I grew up reading a lot. Um, my introduction to science fiction and speculative fiction was uh, two, two main things, uh, reading the Tripod Trilogy when I was a, a child, the uh, John Christopher series, and... Uh, I I read a lot of classic literature when I was younger, so of course, Wells and Verne. And then when my sister moved away to college, she gave me, I must have been six or seven years old, she gave me a hand-me-down radio. And incidentally, at my bedtime, there was an AM radio station that would play old radio dramas from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And so I fell in love with radio dramas, uh, the Westerns, the the crime ones, the detective stories, uh, Alaskan adventure, of course, science fiction. Uh, And that's where my love of genre fiction came from. But all through my teenage years, I tended to stick to classic literature and kind of fell away from science fiction. And then when I was 19 or 20 years old, a friend introduced me to Kurt Vonnegut, I read everything he wrote, uh, wanted more and wasn't sure where to go. Uh, I ended up finding Frank Herbert, uh, not Dune, uh, ironically, it was uh, The Eyes of Heisenberg that really got me started. And from there, I would just go and buy, you know, whatever cheap books on the dollar rack at the bookstore. So and I didn't really know anything about science fiction at the time. So I ended up reading a lot of Asimov, Clark, you know, the names that we're all familiar with, Um, and from there just started picking books at random and found people like uh, Kate Wilhelm, uh, Wilhelm, and uh, Walter Tevis, and once I got to that point, the ball just spiraled out of control, and I fell in love with science fiction and started reading it pretty much exclusively, but it was um, reading about science that led me to science fiction. You know, I had been reading about Heisenberg, and, and that's why I picked up that Frank Herbert book, not because it was science fiction. I thought, well, how do you fictionalize these kind of concepts? Um, and that was the deep end for me. I, I dove in and never looked back.
0: How does he, I didn't read that book, does he uh, fictionalize the Heisenberg principle?
1: Uh, the book is ma- mostly about cloning. Uh, But again, this was over 20 years ago now, so it's not the freshest in my mind. But it was enough to get me addicted to science fiction.
0: Cool. And then what's the next step? Like what happened then?
1: So I had been I'd written poetry most of my life and I um, had written some short stories and and prose. You know, I wasn't very good. I I was probably trying to be Charles Baudelaire or something uh, as as young men (laughs) will be guilty of. Um, and so I guess this is maybe 12, 13 years ago. I I had read so much science fiction, but I, I wasn't in contact with fandom and I didn't really know many people that that liked science fiction, but I had derived so much enjoyment from it that I wanted to find ways to give back somehow. And that's when mm-hmm. I first started trying to write science fiction. And I wrote a few short stories and I wrote a, a novella that you know, wasn't very good. Uh, It it took me a while to figure out how to write well. And um, and then in 2014, did you need did you ever need to write or? Yeah, I'd I'd always, I'd written on and off throughout my life. It was definitely something I always wanted to do. And then um, because I had derived so much enjoyment from science fiction, I wanted to find a way to give back to the science fiction world somehow. And in 2014, I started writing um, a lot of science fiction and exclusively science fiction. And uh, the next year I moved out to the desert and I was working as a handyman for a while. And then I found a location. I'd always kind of had a dream in the back of my mind to open up a bookstore. And uh, I found a location The price was right. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to Take my chances and roll the dice and see what happens. So I opened a little science fiction bookstore. It was in a shed, uh, in a little dirt alley, and people laughed at me when they walked in there. They said, "You're crazy out here in the middle of nowhere with a shed full of science fiction books." But uh, I did well enough that within a year, I was able to get a bigger location. Well, started let's don't
0: ho- get st- I would do that slow, more slowly, uh, to break that down.
1: So, in what city was that? In Joshua Tree, California. Okay. And
0: how do you start? Like you started a bookstore when you knew the internet was a thing. Like Amazon was causing bookstores to shut down. Uh, bookstores, especially used bookstores, were slowly being uh, annihilated by Amazon. And so that was a kind of a crazy move
1: it was, and everyone definitely told me I was crazy. Um, but it was the reading and books of something I've loved so much throughout my life. And I, I did manage a bookstore back in the late nineties, early 2000s. So I had some experience Mm. and my, my reasoning was for the first year I was still working construction jobs. Uh, it was a year till I moved into doing the bookstore full time, but, um, I had worked so many different jobs, hospitality, I'd been a bellhop. I'd worked in a kitchen. I'd worked at grocery stores. I'd worked painting houses and never liked any of the work that I did. I I wanted to do something more intellectual. And um, I figured with opening a bookstore that I was going to like my customers that I would enjoy talking to them. And so it wouldn't really feel like work. And, I believe that anytime you're really passionate about something and you love something, it's going to attract those that, that love it too. And, you know, it's, it's not like in working in the food industry or something where everybody eats. So you're going to deal with every type of person, but in a science fiction bookstore, chances are most of the people are going to be geeks like us. And, and those are the people I want to meet and talk to And uh, it's certainly not a lucrative profession, you know, especially with things like Amazon being the competitor, but it's it's a labor of love and I enjoy it. You know, when it's slow, I get to read, I get to write. And when it's busy, I talk with people about books. So that's a, a dream come true. And it's been six years now and, uh, you know, e- we survived the pandemic um, and it's still doing all right. I'm still making my living doing it. You know, it's, it's a lot of work and I have to wear a lot of hats, but it's fun work. So so what do you get
0: of the books in the first
1: place? Uh, that's an interesting part of the job. Uh, I'll travel around. I try to buy large collections when I can. Uh, recently, I just bought a couple thousand vintage science fiction paperbacks from a bookstore that was going to go out of business. Um, a lot of digging. You know, you have to dig through a lot of garbage looking for the good stuff. And uh, at this point, I've just been doing it for so long. I've always been a book collector. So when I first opened, it was mostly things from my collection that I was willing to part with, uh, although I was really sad to see all them go. It took me a few years to, to not be like, oh, no, that book's leaving because <laughs> I get attached to the books. Mm-hmm. Um so uh, there's a lot of hunting involved, but, uh, you know, I have some collectors that will sell to me and trade. So it's been an interesting way to meet other book collectors as well.
0: And the name behind you, did you, when did you pick that name? Was that the first name you ever gave the store, or did you?
1: It, it came pretty naturally for the store. Um, we're located we're located in the middle of the Mojave desert. So, um, and we're right. We're only a few miles from Joshua tree national park. So if you walk around this neighborhood, um, you definitely get a sense that you're in the West. Uh, mm-hmm. it feels very Western there's tumbleweeds cactus. Um, and then of course the, uh, the, the space element, you know, the science fiction, and I've always been an astronomy nerd. Um, so it just made a lot of sense that, you know, I'm this wacky science fiction book dealer out in the Wild West. And we do sell Westerns as well.
0: Sure. In the beginning, how'd you get people to the store? Like, right? You were successful in one year. That's, that is phenomenal for bookstore, for used bookstore. You know, bookstores hang by their fingernails to, to, to survive. So how do you do that?
1: Uh, so it it is always a constant stress that it's not going to work out. There's at least a couple times a year where I go, oh no, it's it's over. Um, but I'm very fortunate where the store is located that we have a lot of tourist traffic. So that's that's always been a great help. And within a couple months of opening, we started doing free events for the public, uh, old science fiction movie screenings, readings. Occasionally music, we host plays, um, which has been a wonderful way to connect and work with authors, but it was also to a way to engage with the community and uh, bring people in. And like I said, the first year people were really, you know, it was a very modest little shop and, and uh, uh, people just thought it was a weird idea. They didn't understand what we were trying to do. And when the first year was up and I was really sick of being a construction worker, um, I I didn't know that it was going to work. I didn't know that I was going to be able to pay my bills. So I, I just jumped in and started working six, seven days a week uh, to see if I could make it happen. And, um, you know, I'm usually able to pay my bills. I, I It's not going to make me rich, but uh, I get to sit in a room full of books all day. So... Um, and, and of course, since then, we've branched out uh, with the podcast online events so that we can work with international authors. And um, initially, for the first few years, I didn't try to sell books online or anything. I, I wanted it to be a place uh, where it feels like the past when you come in. Uh, I, I don't know about everyone else, but you know, I get really sick of being on the computer all the time. And I wanted to create a place where, um, you know, it was like it used to be. Uh, you know, no no internet service in there. I don't have a cash register. I just have a little notebook for a ledger, uh, and, and doing things whoa, whoa, the old whoa. way. What do you mean? What do you mean? Um, yeah, that- I didn't. I didn't. I you know, I I grew up my whole life haunting the dusty stacks bookstores and just being in love with those types of places. And I, I wanted to create a place like that where it. It didn't feel modern when you came inside. I mean, I have modern literature and modern science fiction in the store, mm-hmm. but I wanted it to be a place where, you know, you don't pull out your cell phone. It, it, it's a place to enjoy books. And, uh, you know, I, I specialize in vintage science fiction. So we have a lot of old books and and I want it to feel like an old bookshop, Um I, I find that environment to be much more comfortable, you know, in a, in a way, the antithesis of a place like Amazon.
0: But how do people if There's no <laughs> cash register. Uh,
1: well, I have a little box, you know, for the cash and I can, I can take credit cards with the phone. Um, but you know, there's, there's never a computer in there. Uh, you know, people ask, how do you keep track of the inventory? And it's all in my head. I have it memorized. Wow. Um, so it's, you know, I, I didn't want it to be a very modern place, you know, with, with the ideas expressed and with the literature, sure. But as far as the rest of it as a, as a cultural experience, I wanted it to, to feel the way things used to be.
0: Tell me about the, the events. I think the events, that's where you began. That's where you began doing things that are out of the box uh, for, for a bookstore. So how did you do that? Like, what kind of events did you do? How
1: did you get people so to I'm very lucky at the property where the store is located. There is a stage. Uh, when I first moved in, it was a little teeny stage. And then eventually a bunch of us got together and built, um, uh, the, which was the property manager's dream. He is a, a theater producer. So we built uh, basically an outdoor amphitheater. So I've been extremely fortunate to have a wonderful space to do events. Um, I always try to start local whenever I do anything. So at first I started inviting local writers. There was a local poetry magazine that I invited to do monthly events. Mm. Um, We have a little projector. So we'd show old Westerns and science fiction films from the fifties. And, uh, you know, we'll have a band play occasionally and then uh, plays, uh, which has been, those have been incredibly rewarding to be a part of. Uh, It just made sense to do because we had the right type of venue for it, and one of the ideas with opening the bookstore is I wanted to connect and work with other authors. When when I began writing science fiction and for the first handful of years that I was writing science fiction, I didn't know any other science fiction writers, and I felt very alone in that, and so to connect with my local science fiction writers and, and see the really wonderful work that they were doing and become friends with these, you know, writers and publicists and people booking reading tours would start coming to us. And, uh, and then I just started reaching out to authors that I loved and hey, we have this place, would you like to do something? Uh, So we've hosted oh probably over over 200 events, uh, uh, mostly in person, but you know, in the last couple years online as well. Uh, And it's,
0: yeah, do you, and reading, really, like, which, what kind of events? Let, let's get to the online in a second. Like, I really, the thing I really can't grasp, I, I really want to get is how, how to bring people, how to create events that connect people. And so, yeah, go ahead.
1: Well, um, you know, keeping in, in fashion with uh, not doing things the modern way, uh, you know, we would make handbills and flyers to put around town, uh, you know, invite people for open mic readings. And it, it didn't take, I, I think the town has changed since I've opened, but originally when, when we opened, there was not a lot of that sort of thing, literary events happening here. So I think we filled a much needed um, gap. Hmm. to To have the local literary community have a place to do uh, to share their work, and um, you know, it just kind of caught on. I mean, every now and then an event. You know, not that many people show up, but some people always come, and they're just a good time. So um, you know, host anywhere from two to five a month, and you know, that's that the the programming for the events is a lot of additional work on top of the bookstore, but that's the part where we can connect with people. And and that's the rewarding part. And, you know, we also have a free books for kids program. So we've had free books for kids day where kids can come and just take as many books as they want. We've had youth readings, uh, through the local elementary schools and the local poetry magazine, and just really trying to give a place where people can have the, um, freedom to express themselves and we've never charged for an event it's always something that we've wanted to uh just do as a community service
0: and then you've got to uh to do online events
1: so when the pandemic hit and we were we, we had to close the bookstore down for a while uh which was very challenging and i knew right then in in order to survive uh, i had to build an online store and move the sales to online Uh, but quickly I realized that this was also a really wonderful opportunity to work with authors all over the world, instead of just people that I could get to travel out here to the middle of nowhere in the desert. Um, and through the podcast that we do simultaneous times, I had been lucky enough to meet a lot of wonderful authors all around the country and the world. And, um, so just used that as an, as an opportunity, we didn't want to stop what we were doing, And uh, I knew because travel is inconvenient for a lot of people, especially during the pandemic, I thought, well, you know, if we can get people to match up with time zones, um, there's no reason for us to stop doing this. And uh, it's actually been a really wonderful experience because apart from, you know, I I love working with my community uh, here in Joshua Tree, but even more so working with the greater science fiction community at large, uh, because there is so much wonderful work being produced all over the world now and you know it's would be impractical to get someone up from brazil to do a reading for an hour but because we have you know the video phone uh we can do this sort of thing and um it's just been New a way to, yeah <laughs> it's been a way to further connect and and you know anyone myself included that had a book come out last year uh, struggled for sales it was a, it was a rough year to put books out and um i wanted to find a way to support writers where we could still you know hopefully generate some book sales because last year was a bad year to have a book come out and it's so much work writing a book uh (laughs) it's tragic to have your your sales dip just due to circumstance
0: see so how did you find
1: the authors and um that, that happens in a variety of ways. Uh, you know, we do always accept submissions. Uh, m- most of the writers that I've met have been uh, people I've met through the podcast, either either because they've submitted or, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll be on Twitter looking at, at what other writers are up to. And when I see something that looks interesting, uh, I'll just reach out and say, hey, do you want to submit a story to the podcast? Would you like to do a live event? Um, and yeah, basically, you know, if someone writes me and they say, Hey, I have a new science fiction book coming out, they go, well, okay, well, let's see what we can do together. Or if if I really love someone's work, I'll, mm. I'll just write and ask. Uh, and it's, it's been really neat because, you know, people, for the most part, people in the science fiction world are very friendly and kind people and, and want to be involved in the community. So, um, It hasn't been that hard to to get people interested, and of course, with the uh, with simultaneous times podcast, I pay the authors as well. You know, we're a semi pro, Um, so that's always a little easier to get people's attention to when there's some some money on the other end. Didn't
0: know that. So let's talk about the podcast. Like like, when did the podcast start? I mean,
1: so we began the podcast. I think it was in. March of 2018. So it's been just about four years. And um, was it 2017? I can't remember. We've done we've done 44 episodes once a month. And uh, for a while we were doing interviews, interviews for the podcast as well. But we stopped doing that because it was getting impractical to meet people in person for the interviews due to the pandemic. Um, But as I was saying earlier, you know, one of my first uh, things falling in love with science fiction was listening to the radio dramas. And I have a background in audio engineering. And, you know, we wanted to publish books, too. And and we have published books, but I knew that with my skill set and with the amount of funds that we had available, that it would be more practical to do a podcast. So it was It was definitely something we wanted to do from the beginning. Originally, I thought I had a bunch of old ambient music and some stories I'd written that um, hadn't been published. And I thought, oh, it'll just I'll do a couple episodes of doing my own thing. But uh, as soon as I started working with the composers that do the music for the podcast Mm -hmm. and uh, some of my local writer friends writing stories for the podcast, it very quickly I realized that this could be something bigger than what I had originally intended it to be and started paying for stories. Um, So that, that made a lot of people more willing to work with us. And it was just, it made a lot of sense because of the skill set of me and the the, myself and the people that I work with. And I also really wanted to, in in the late seventies and early eighties, there was a a radio program, uh, that you can find on archive.org actually called Mindwebs, And Wait, I had kind co- of, mind webs,
0: mind webs,
1: Okay. I can, I'll send you a link. It's, it's an amazing program. And they did all kinds of stories throughout the history of science fiction and a lot of uh, stories from the new wave era, which I was really keen on. There's a wonderful rendition of a Thomas dish story called descending that I think that really got me hooked on the, uh, on the radio program. And, when I had downloaded all those and started listening to them, the way that they had handled the productions kind of like radio plays was very inspiring to me. And I wanted to create uh, a program that did that, where we could bring the stories to life with dramatic readings, sometimes cast readings, original soundtracks, sound effects Foley, and Foley. Um, and I just happened to be really fortunate that a couple of my friends, are amazing composers that, that wanted to do this so that we could really bring these stories to life. And it's, as you know, from podcasting, it can be a tremendous amount of work. Um, you know, every episode takes between us, I don't know, at least a hundred hours to, to complete it. It can be a little stressful sometimes, but the end product is so wonderful and, and so enjoyable. And it's such an easy accessible way for people to, um, to share in the love of science fiction stories that, uh, don't, don't want to stop, you know, it's, it's become a a compulsion to, to have to produce this thing. And it's also been an amazing way to meet new writers from all over the world. We've had writers from, from Brazil, from Germany, from England, of course, from the States. And, uh, I I hope to produce stories from all over the world because there's so much good science fiction coming out right now from, you know, a wide variety of of perspectives. And Uh, how do you find,
0: uh, world science fiction we i I talk to quite a lot of uh, world uh science fiction fantasy authors and they have a really hard time being introduced to the english-speaking world how how do you find that um
1: well you know a lot of it's just through through submissions uh Mm -hmm. and and then you know oftentimes with some of my friends and, and writers in Brazil that we've been working with, you know, I'll say, Hey, you've got wonderful stories. Do you have any other friends that, that write stories? Um, and so usually one connection leads to another. Uh, I, ideally uh, in, in some cases it's people I've known through other things and just said, Hey, do you want to submit some stories? Um, it's not always a yes. The first time there's a submission, but I, I find that usually we can either, work on developing the story till, till it does work. Or, um, you know, I always encourage people, you know, don't give up if there's one rejection, you know, please send, send another, I, you know, ultimately I want to say yes and, and produce stories. Um, and, and ideally develop long-term relationships with the writers, you know, with, with the majority of the writers that we have on the podcast, I try to invite them back, uh, at least a couple times a year where, um, you know, because the fans listening love the stories. Well, they want to hear more. And, and so do I, because I'm, I'm a fan of all the, of all the writers that we've produced. I can hear how much you
0: love this, how much you love reading and, and, and stories and books. That's amazing. And how the same question is about the store. How did you, how do you get the world out for the audience for the podcast? It's a podcast that costs you money. Uh, so how, how do you, How do you make sure you have enough
1: listeners so that's always tricky at first um you know i i talk to a lot of people that are getting started and the numbers aren't very rewarding oh gosh we're only reaching this many people or um and i find that it's it's a persistence thing um you know we did the podcast for about a year before we had a a large audience you know we had we had a handful of people listening i don't know maybe maybe 150 200 people or something and it it took a few months to get to that and then once we hit the 13th or 14th episode something changed and and the audience really grew and I think part of that is you know as you work with more and more people more people know about it you know because you know I'm on your podcast I'm going to tell some friends about your podcast and and it just kind of snowball there's a snowball effect with that uh, and I think also with podcasting, because it's it takes a while to get started and on the right foot, I think a lot of people give up too soon. And once it's been around for a while and people see the name more regularly, they, they get more interested. And um, interestingly, it's not we've had a handful of uh, bigger name writers. And that's not really what brings the audience in, uh, necessarily. It's, I think it's just working with a lot of people, whether that be the musicians, the voice actors, the different authors. And then of course, um, when I'm at the store and uh, at the bookstore and talking with people about science fiction, uh, they often want to know more about science fiction. It's okay. Well, you bought, um, you know, this Joanna Russ book, if you're interested in feminist science fiction, you should check out Susan Rukeyser, who's written a bunch of stories for our, our podcast, because she writes amazing feminist science fiction. And through seeing people's tastes through what they they're buying. Um, and the podcast is right there on the bookmark. Say, oh, you're going to want to check out this episode. You know, if, if you like cyberpunk, then you should probably check out the episode with Rudy Rucker or. Um, oh, you got so, on the show. Mm hmm. Yeah. And it was in the beginning of 2020, right before the pandemic. Oh, and um, so I'm just positioned in a, in a really interesting place since I'm in a room full of science fiction books all day, every day. Uh, it comes up a lot. And, um, you know, when the pandemic first started, I noticed that we lost a lot of listeners for a while. And I, I assume that's probably because most people listen in their cars when they're commuting and mm-hmm. we were on lockdown uh, but it didn't take too long to get those numbers back up. And um, for me, it's not really so much about how many people are listening is that a lot of people are enjoying the the stories. Um, you know, and and that's what's important. It's, it's not the, you know, huge numbers, although now we have thousands of listeners and it's incredibly rewarding because we get to share the work of these authors with so many people. Um, but to me, it's really about, you know, how much people enjoy it. And it, that that's why we do this. That's, that's why we can't stop doing it.
0: It's amazing.
1: Uh,
0: I'm really shocked. I'm, I found, fa- I found out from talking to guests that the thing that all that puts me in awe the most is the thing, one thing I find the hardest to do, which is uh, uh, the way you are able to do multiple things to bring people in that's something I've never learned to do. It's, it comes, it's very hard for me. So it is always inspiring and uh, I'm slightly awestruck by it, like the ability to do that.
1: So, well, it's an interesting one because I think most writers, not all, but a lot of writers and a lot of science fiction fans were, were introverts. So the, the, um, public aspects of it don't, don't necessarily come naturally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to say it took me a few years to get really comfortable uh, talking with people all the time. Uh, but it's been a learning experience that has helped me uh, be able to be more social and, and more comfortable around people and not anxious. And I, I think the main thing is, you know, it's, it's the persistence and not giving up. I mean, Every writer knows how difficult it is to get published, how, how persistent you have to be, how many rejections you have to get to get to that acceptance. Um, and I'm no stranger to that. Uh, one of the things in my life that I've tried to do and with the bookstore is I love to be the person that says yes, uh, especially when things are, I know how hard it is on the other end. Um, of course, can't always say yes. It breaks my heart every time I have to reject anyone. Um, that's the hardest part of the job. But you have to but, like you
0: you get like it takes you 100 hours to do an episode and you must get many submissions. Like you have to reject people.
1: Yeah, we don't get as many submissions as I'd like oddly enough. Okay. Um, a, a lot of times I'm soliciting stories from people. Uh you know, I'll find a writer I love or we've done an event um You know, we do a monthly flash fiction reading online, and that's been a wonderful way to find stories for the podcast because, you know, I'll I'll ask someone to come read and then their story is so amazing. It's, hey, is there any way that we can we can produce this? You know, I think this would make a wonderful audio play. Um, So that's been a a great way to connect with people and writers, too. I I encourage people to submit. We're paying two cents a word um, up to a thousand words always trying to raise our pay rates when we can. It, it really depends on business at the store because the either the store is paying for it or I'm paying for it with my nonfiction writing. Um, I, but I feel incredibly fortunate to, to have that uh, so that we can pay writers.
0: So let's get to your writing. What do you write?
1: Uh, well, I write a lot of science fiction short stories. I tend to write novella-length books. Uh, I've also written quite a few books of speculative poetry, and uh, recently, this year, I became the editor of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Poetry Association's magazine, Starline, um, so I'm very involved in speculative poetry now, and uh, that's always super rewarding to me because I, I, I love writing poetry, but I I wanted to be a storyteller through the poetry and, and to do uh, narrative poetry, and it lends itself very well to science fiction. It's also a place where I can test out the ideas that I have for my short stories. I know sometimes I'll write a short story, you get halfway through and go ah, there's not enough here to, to make a great story. Um, so oftentimes, I'll write right, I'll write a poem about the theme, and, and then adapt that into a short story. Uh, I've also written some plays. I was lucky enough to have one of my plays produced at our theater. Uh, We did a horror play for Halloween a couple of years ago and we were supposed to do a science fiction play that I wrote uh, this year, but we have to push back the live events for a while. So hopefully that'll be coming soon, but I'd say my, the main part of my output for writing is probably novella length books. Uh, I published one last year called garbage in gospel out. um, And then. During lockdown, I wrote a few more, so hopefully those will happen soon. Um, do you have a
0: couple you can show us? Like, uh...
1: yeah, I do. Let me uh, let me grab them real quick. So this is "Garbage in, Gospel Out," which is my first published novella that came out in January of 2020. Uh, it's it's a similar thematically. It's similar to 1984. It's about a propagandist. Um, But it's about a propaganda bureau where no one that works there really knows what the aim is. And um, it's sort of an unconventional novella in that it's told in a series of vignettes. And there's some some cut-up writing. There's some auto-generative writing in there. um, A lot of iteration. Real
0: Uh, auto-generative writing or, or fake?
1: using predictive text to write, uh, doing cut ups. Um, so there's a whole variety of styles that go into it. Um, I'd say the book, it's, it's a very unusual book. But when I had read Ice by Anna Kavan, it gave me the uh, the faith to write weird and and to to use unconventional narratives, which is not it's I mean, normally I write more traditional science fiction, even sometimes very campy uh, 1950s style science fiction, um, but I like I like experimental writing too, and and the uh, the writers that really cause cognitive dissonance. You know, J.G. Ballard is one of my favorite writers. Um, so very much inspired by those types of themes. Uh, before that, I had a collection of short stories called Echo of Creation, released yeah. by a, a local publisher that's run by one of my friends. So that's more of my traditional science fiction stories. I have a a new collection I haven't yet published of science fiction stories that's much weirder, uh, stranger themes and weirder writing. Um, And then through the bookstore and the podcast, we've released two anthologies simultaneous times volume one and volume two, which just came out in June. And these are both collections of uh, science fiction writers from the area here. like I said, I always try and focus on local writers first and and then branch out. So we've released two anthologies of science fiction stories that are wonderfully illustrated. And we just released, uh, I think it was last month uh, simultaneous times volume 2.5, which is a free ebook that's available on our website. And that has some of our writers from Brazil, from Germany, from England, a bunch of different illustrators that just did amazing work. And uh, that's available for free. A lot of the stories that had appeared in the podcast, but there's always a couple stories that are appearing for the first time. And then I also have written Future Anthropology, which is a collection of science fiction poetry. It's four different sections that had originally been published as chapbooks and then collected into one volume. And currently, this has been translated into Portuguese, and it's going to come out in Brazil as a bilingual edition, hopefully sometime next year. And that was nominated. I was very fortunate that was nominated for the Elgin Award for uh, Best Speculative Poetry Book of the Year. And then last year, I also put out Beetlejuice Dimming, which is... uh, Sort of a long lament about uh, when they'd announced that the star Beetlejuice was going to go Nova. And every night I watched, hoping it would happen. And then I started so I could see a Nova with my naked eye. um, And then I started feeling more and more guilty about the potential civilizations around that star that I was wanting it to blow up. And and so it's about the the. Mixed emotions that I had uh, revolving, you know, watching the night sky every night. And this was also nominated for the Elgin Award um, for Best Speculative Chat Book. Uh, I've recently I've got a couple more books that are ready to go, but haven't been published yet. I just finished a book. It's it's not speculative per se, but it is a book of poetry. Uh, It's a protest book against nuclear weapons. Um, and one of the really fun things we do with the with the poetry books is um, if you get this one for me, it comes with a CD or there's also a free, free download albums. I usually get together with the composers from the podcast and we'll make a, an album out of the poetry book as well. So I'll do the readings set to music. And that's just been a lot of fun because me and my friends get to get together and, you know, have a glass of wine and make music and read poetry and
0: I'm saying that is so much, uh, uh, doing that's So like, it sounds to me that you are not a suffering writer. Like it doesn't hurt you to write. Like you have an idea and you write it down and, uh, and that's what you do. Right.
1: That really depends on the nature of the book that I'm writing. Um, you know, I, I don't have to rely on writing to make my living, thank God, uh, <laughs> because I'd probably be in deep, deep trouble there. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a bookseller first and foremost in that regard. It, it really depends. You know, uh, Beetlejuice Dimming was a difficult book to write mm-hmm. uh, because of the mixed emotions. Uh, last year, you know, during during shutdown, I started thinking a lot about the bigger problems we have in the world. I know this is kind of a weird response, but um, I I started thinking about, you know, the atrocities committed and, and just the the larger problems that maybe aren't as immediate or they are immediate. We just don't really discuss them. And so, you know, I grew up in the eighties under Ronald Reagan. I remember doing duck and cover exercises. We were still doing them, you know, before the cold war ended. And I started realizing what a product of that I was. And, um, writing the, the, it's called proving grounds, the, the one about nuclear weapons that was very challenging because it is a negative subject. And it's, I mean, the talk about some of the worst ideas humanity has ever had and, and the, um, the genocidal prospects of such things. Um, I was really excited to finish writing it because I spent about a year and a half just thinking about the cold war and, Reading everything I could about nuclear weapons, and it was a, a dismal affair. Um, yes. And it, fill, it it filled me with a lot of rage. the The, the book is very angry. Um, it's meant to try and make people angry enough to get involved and sign some petitions and get involved with the anti nuclear weapons organizations, um, because it's it's really. Uh, you know along with many other things a global issue that we're all at risk from and for some reason when the cold war ended we stopped having the conversation about nuclear weapons but there are still something like fifteen thousand nuclear weapons out there pointed at each other and wh- what what why you know we, we uh... I'm, I'm, I'm
0: sold in the black market now just because russia can't uh, yeah
1: <laughs> did you know
0: i think i really uh it was either to Coca or to pepsi i think uh there was a time a few decades ago when Russia made a big, uh, signed a deal with River Coke or Pepsi, one of them, but they couldn't pay, they didn't have money to pay them. So they paid them with submarines. They paid submarines to the big companies. And, you know, they were in charge of a fleet of submarines for a while until I think they sold them for parts in Finland or something. Um, that is a crazy story
1: of uh, the cold it's it's madness and and when you when you start the more you learn about the the history of the cold war there are so many things that are just beyond comprehension of the insanity of what was being done um of course you know we got to space because of it too which you know that's cool but yeah. um but I also believe that was all a front to uh, allow these companies, the military industrial complex, to proliferate these weapons. And of course, even in decommissioning the weapons, you hire the same people that built it to do it. So it all points back to a small group of incredibly rich people that uh, don't give a damn whether humanity lives or dies. And I mean, to me, that's it's a massive issue. We, we cannot allow uh, genocides to happen ever again. We cannot allow another bomb to be dropped. Um, and, you know, as, as a poet, it's easy to feel like, well, I have no, I have no sway. What can I do, you know, or as anyone, what can we do about these issues? But I, I think it's the type of thing where whatever it is that you do, that you can do, that's where you apply yourself and, and try to make a difference. And I think there, there is a misconception in our world, uh, definitely in the United States, that the arts don't make a difference and that's simply not true uh you know anyone that says writing uh can't change the world has missed a lot of books i mean think of um the communist manifesto and then tell me that books can't change the world uh you know and whatever that is you know for a long time pamphleteering was was the way people reached each other and um i think that the artist or the writer does have great power uh, and, and we've been sold this myth of being disenfranchised. Uh, and of course, you know, it's hard to get writing out there, but if I can convince one person, one other person to be an anti-nuclear activist, then um, I've succeeded. And, and sometimes it only takes one person to, to make that big difference that, that makes life better for everyone. So I tend to be optimistic. <laughs> No. <laughs> I, I, I try to be optimistic with these things. And I think that's one thing that draws me towards science fiction. And I've, I've said this before, it's, you know, in writing about the future, we have, to, we have to presuppose that there is a future. And if there's a future, then there's hope. So, um, you know, if there's a social responsibility to science fiction, I think that is that we need to be the ones that can imagine positive futures because if we can't imagine them, how can we make them a a reality? And that's the the role of the artist and the writer. You know, it can just be entertainment too. Of course, there's nothing wrong with that, but um, we can be the ones to imagine. And once something's been imagined, then the steps can be taken to make it a reality. Uh, And I'm excited to see around the world, um, uh, you know, obviously, dystopian literature has been quite popular for a long time but we, we're seeing more and more positive futures coming up and uh, how do we grapple with our societal problems and how do we envision that to, to be better and to make progress and and once we've envisioned it then I think we can start implementing it so I, I think that writers and artists have a considerable amount of power in the world when it comes to our thinking of what is possible and of course speculative fiction is the, the fiction of What can be possible?
0: Yeah, and uh, I think uh, there's at least some people believe that Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land is part of what started the 60s movement. Uh, And I remember stories from uh, my grandmother who was in World War II. Um, She was Polish, Jewish. She had to run away to uh, Russia and uh, um, and they used to get pamphlets like you say they used to get pamphlets from and she quoted them to me 70 years later you know um, 70, 60 years later um, and, and she, they moved people so much and it was like there was only one blog in the world and it was this person And he said uh, you know you try to uh, move people and get them to, 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 to act. And
1: I think if it's, if, if it's done passionately, then it will work. You know, if, when you love something, um, it's hard not to respond to someone loving something, you know, and, and that's one of the things I, I love so much about the science fiction community, you know, for, for whatever faults it might have. We all love science fiction. And when you love something, it's, it's easy to spread that love um you know in, in today's day and age we as much as uh, culture wants us to be against this against that you know being for something is so much more powerful and um you know it's interesting you know in stranger in a strange land one of the other things he predicted that came true it, it was televangelism of all things and i thought that that was an incredibly interesting prediction to get right um you know with the holographic um reproductions of the book of revelations and, you know, those uh, quite poignant scenes in that book. Um, you know, I think, I don't know that that book started the movements of the sixties. I could see how it would be related, but also the, um, you know, what the world wars did to everyone. Of course the youth is going to react against these things and, and who of us wasn't affected, you know, part of my family's Armenian and, and I'm in the States because of the genocide, um, you know, they'd come to America, those that got out alive and and ended up back in France and then had to leave France because of World War Two. Um, so, I mean, the World Wars. I, I don't know if it left anyone on the planet unaffected. And, um, you know, as a science fiction writer, <laughs> whatever I can do there, you know, I, I think uh, preventing that sort of thing ever happening again to any peoples, uh, especially with the you know, I can't speak to the rest of the world, but in, in, American politics are particularly ugly right now, um, and and have been really terrible. And a lot of the nuclear treaties uh, were torn up and thrown away. And um, you know, we we can't let that happen because what what will that do to future generations? And we have we have bigger fish to fry too than than just not getting along with each other. It's time to team up as a as a world uh, to fix some of our world problems. Yeah,
0: you know? I, I was. I became, I live in a country where, uh, which is without a lot of powers and uh, there's a lot of injustice. And I became, I tried in my 20s to create create really um, moving stories, books, plays, and... I saw that not only could I couldn't change anything, I was, I also became jaded because I saw that politics has so much, so many levels to it in which things can die, new ideas can die. And I did become uh jaded to the idea that maybe we can't change anything. Um while deep inside you can't write if you can if you think you can't change anything. Uh, so what I do is I change, I touch people's uh, souls instead of trying to move them to do specific things. Um, but that is a really good case. And I was also jaded by, um, you know, the United States had some of the best satire uh, in its history with uh, Stephen Colbert, The Colbert Show, and The Daily Show, Jon Stewart. Really amazing, smart, funny, Popular comedy satire on uh, bad things that are happening. And uh, especially in the United States. And then Trump came. And most of the people, which is the opposite of what they talked about. And I uh, I felt maybe doesn't change anything. But you're right. You know,
1: go ahead. It, it's hard to say. um I think satire is incredibly important. And, you know, the, the book I showed you earlier, Garbage in Gospel Out, it's, it's a satirical novel. Uh, so I'm not above doing satire myself. And I think that uh, when it comes to prejudice, that laughter is one of the easiest ways to begin to break down that wall. If, when we can laugh together or laugh at each other, um, then we... It, it's a commonality and it's a, it's always a good place to start, but I don't think it's enough in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, one of the most powerful things about fiction, I also used to be extremely jaded. I was a, I was a pessimist for a lot of my life and learning to write really taught me empathy. You know, if you're going to write characters, you you have to be someone else for a moment. Uh, you really have to understand other people. And I, I can't claim that I understand everybody, but. It, it um, being a writer has certainly made me want to, to be curious about people's stories and want to hear everybody's stories. I mean, there's a, there's a story that I, I love to share. One day I was at the saloon in town and I was talking to uh, just another guy that happened to be there having a drink. And as an introvert, I'm not the type of person that's always been inclined to just speak to a stranger, but being a writer has taught me to want to do that. And I was speaking to this man and hearing a little bit about his life story, and he happened to have been uh, to work on nuclear submarines uh, for a good portion of his life. And one of the things I love to ask people is, well, you know, in, in any profession or, or background, you know, what do you do in your free time? Uh, so I asked this guy, you know, well, what do you do And you're not manning the, the submarine? And he looks at me and he said, well, we play tag. And I thought this is what in the submarine. submarine." And I thought, what a what an amazing image that you have all these people down in a submarine prepared for war. It's this extremely grim, dark situation. And then when given the opportunity, they act like children and, and play and have fun. And and what a beautiful story that is. And how easy it would be to judge someone based off of their circumstances. But the reality is they're no different than you. Or I. None of us are that different. We all have that inner child, uh, whether we engage with it or let it out is, a, is another story. And I think that's one of the magical things about writing fiction. It it allows, you know, for me, it, it lets me be five years old. You know, when when people ask what I do for work, sometimes I tell them that I I fly around in a cardboard spaceship and. Um, because that's what I did when I was a kid. I built spaceships out of car- cardboard, pretend to be an astronaut. And, and today uh, my life's not that different. I'm not actually in a cardboard box. I'm in a room full of books, um, but I'm, I'm still having those, those dreams and fantasies that are, that are so much fun. And so writing has taught me not to be jaded. And I think um, it's, it's not just writing that can do that. I think reading can as well. And that's one of the reasons it's so important that as a global community, uh, we hear each other's stories, you know, that they're not just coming from one place um, because then we can see what our commonalities really are. And and uh, if there's differences, we can t- identify those and begin to understand them.
0: Is, that is, those are great points and it's really inspiring. And you also got me to think differently about uh, things, which is amazing. So thank you very much.
1: And yeah, in a way, Writing yeah. is writing is the only form of telepathy that we've ever come across, a real telepathy where it is a direct passage into the thoughts of another. Um, and because we have that access, I mean that that's magic in itself. Um, because we have that access, uh, what better way to get to know each other, to understand each other, to um, break apart cultural differences and and embrace those things. Just stories.
0: Oh. If you write a story, you have a good story, you have to identify with the other person. Like, you have to, with the, the the protagonist and the antagonist. You have to identify with the different people you have. You can't write a really good story without doing that. And, for example, when a uh, few, when I was in university a long, long time ago, like 2,000 years ago, um, There was uh, most of the people, you know, learning arts, I was learning the theater, so most of the people are uh, leftists, Uh, uh, but there was one from the right, and she, which in this case means she, uh, it's nationalistic, and she wrote a story, a short play about, um, you know, in Israel, constantly at war with someone, uh, about uh, a woman on the other side, a mother on the other side, who is also crying for her dead child who was a soldier. And she was, a, which is, it's a trivial thing. Of course, people everywhere cry for the dead kids. That's like basic understanding of what humans are. But that was too much for the place where she came from. They said you're a leftist now, and you, and you know, the things we believe in, because we have to, that they didn't say that, they had to believe the other side was evil in some way and not as human as we are to be able to want to kill them. And you have to, in it, when you're writing, you have to make people understand that everybody is a human being.
1: And I think that also that within each one of us as individuals, we, we have the, di- the dichotomies. We're all a bit of protagonists and antagonists, you know, not, mm-hmm. no one, no one is uh, singular in that way. And I think that's another one of those paths to learning empathy where, you know, of course, anytime they want, you know, the powers that be want violence uh, to dehumanize the other is, is always what's going to be their tactic, um, of course, if you if you look deeply into anything or have a conversation with somebody, you, you realize immediately that that none of those things are true. Um, and and hopefully that, you know, hopefully the world is wised up to those tactics uh, because it's not true. You know, we may speak different languages and because we speak different languages, we will we will think differently. Um, you know, when I started learning Spanish, I realized that when I thought in Spanish, I wasn't the same personality. Uh, so I think a lot of our personality is based on the languages we speak, but that's not an insurmountable barrier. We can learn languages, um, and at the very least read translation and, and, um, learn about the different ways of thinking. And they're not that different. I mean, I think they're, they're generally nuanced and and subtle, but very interesting. And, um, you know, for instance, in Spanish, one of the things I discovered was that, uh, things that, that if I had said in English would have very little weight to them were actually quite powerful in Spanish. So the, um, you know, the level of emotion tied into different words and phrases could be different. Uh, and, and that may be a place where we end up misunderstanding each other, but of course it's an opportunity to understand each other as well. Can you give an example
0: of that? For um.
1: Well, when I was, I, When I was painting houses, uh, I worked with primarily Guatemalans and there was, uh, an old guy, Victor, who I would often work with, who didn't speak any English. And, uh, when my Spanish was getting decent enough to, to have a conversation. And, um, I remember one day we were talking about family and, um, you know, how we view family can differ from culture to culture, but, um, I, I don't remember the exact phrase, but, you know, he, he was telling me he was too old to learn English. You know, he's too, too old to pick up a new skill like that. Um, and, and how, how happy he was that I had made an attempt, uh, to communicate with him. And I remember saying something, you know, some phrase that if I had said it in English, it wouldn't really meant, meant much, you know, it, it wouldn't have been very sentimental particularly, but, um, and saying this out loud, it like brought tears to my eyes where I'm like, oh wow, that's um, even though we're saying the same thing, that the meanings can be altered by language. And you know, I, I wish I had the propensity to learn all kinds of languages because you know what how many personalities do we each have in there when when we um, are educated in different ways of thinking? Yeah, did you read the languages of o
0: by Jack Vance?
1: I haven't read that one, but I, I've read some Jack Vance.
0: What you say reminds me of that. He basically says that, you know, there's lots of planets and there's like a world of wizards or whatever, and they're not really wizards, but what they do is they know 70 languages. So they're able to manipulate entire societies by putting in concepts from different places into the language and then mm-hmm. slowly letting the result come out.
1: yeah and it affects the way it affects the way we think of things like time um you know um ted chang addressed that beautifully in stories of your life um i I tend to find with my taste in science fiction when when the theme of linguistics and communication barrier comes up i'm that's usually my favorite um i I also like when theology and and philosophy are addressed uh you know, ch- challenge our own ways of thinking in, in any way we can, and, and the speculative fiction is a wonderful place to do that because we can invent entire new worlds, of course, I mean, that's, that's self-evident with science fiction, but um, that gives us so much opportunity to think about alternative ways of being and thinking and, and coexisting with each other.
0: Thank you so much to John paul I should say that as I was searching the web for information about John paul that I could share with you, I let Google accidentally autocomplete my search just one time. And ever since, I've been getting ads for Jean-Paul Gaultier, and they just won't stop. And I'm really not going to buy anything by Gaultier. Anyway, I enjoyed this interview immensely, and I hope you did too. In the show notes, you'll find the links to John Paul's bookstore, Twitter, Simultaneous Times Podcast, Instagram, and YouTube. Now, what did you think about this episode? Email me at guy.hasson at givetemimpals.com. Hasson is spelled H-A-S-S-O-N. I want to hear from you. I want to hear from you what you think about this podcast, uh, will you allow me to read your comments on the podcast? Don't have to, but I would like that. Let's let's turn that into a thing. And I would also like you to recommend really cool people to interview. Do my best. Look at this. I found John Paul. I found other great guests. But please help me find more great guests that only a few people have heard of. So email me, guy.hassan at com. The website is geekdomempowers.com. On Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, we're at The YouTube version of all these episodes is coming soon. If you want to check out my other podcast, The Squash Buckler Diaries, which is an experiment in epic fantasy, that's uh, on a personal thing so feel free to check it out. It's called The Squash Buckler Diaries. I will see you next time. And for now, have an empowered day.